All right, good morning. It's 10.45, so we're going to start. Let me begin with a couple of uh, quick housekeeping notes. Uh, one thing that I'd like to remind you of is in your packet when you uh, registered was an evaluation form, and we take that very, very seriously. We look at the feedback, we analyze it, we uh, aggregate it, we run it through a lot of statistical programs, uh, and so on, and we use it to improve the programs from year to year. So we do take those matters very seriously. So please be thinking about it so that at the end of the seminar, you'll have it filled out, and we will then be able to use that information. A couple of quick notes. Uh, lunch will be in the winter garden, so not on the second floor. Uh, we will have uh, box lunches, which are a build-your-own uh, program, so that those of you who want to go on the afternoon bus tour can just take it with you. So again, lunch, don't go upstairs. It'll be on this level outside in the winter garden, and you can just put together your own box lunch. Uh, I recommend dressing comfortably. It may be hot, but it may also rain. So you might want to bring some sort of rain gear or poncho or something. And as you know, Washington, D.C. is hot and humid. It's a miserable, horrible place, so be ready for that. <laughs> um, the founders did locate it here for a reason, after all. <laughs> the buses for this afternoon's tour will depart from the Renaissance Hotel at 1 p.m. And again, I want to emphasize, will depart. So be there early so you can be in the bus as it departs. For this room, please do not leave your belongings. We've got another group that's going to be coming in uh, for conferences. We try to maximize our use of Cato Institute facilities. So as soon as you're out of here, we'll clean it up and get ready for the next program. And then finally, the reception will start at 6.30 in the Winter Garden. I'd like to remind for those of you who might ever <coughs> Uh, anticipate encountering an officer of the law. Uh, at 5.30, it's totally optional, there'll be a showing of the video, Know Your Rights, and Tim Lynch from our Center for Constitutional Studies will lead a discussion on uh, police behavior and the relationships between citizens and their ma uh, employees. Um, so I hope that is all clear. 5.30, optional, but otherwise 6.30 for the reception. And now Steve Landsberg to talk about the economics of Goldilocks. Thank you. Is my microphone on? Good. Uh, those, those fruit tarts they've been serving with, with lunch and with dinner, um, they're terrific, um, and I'm glad I had them. But I had like eight of them yesterday, uh, which reminded me of an important principle from economics, which is that it is possible to have too much of a good thing. The, uh, the hard questions in life are not usually what's good and what's bad. That's easy to tell. The hard question is, what's the right amount? When do you have too much of a good thing? When do you have too little of a bad thing? Should I have dinner tonight? Uh, that's an easy one. I certainly should. Should I have a third helping? That's going to be a harder question. Uh, and we face those same kind of questions, not just in our personal lives, but in our political lives. Should my town have a fire department? I believe it should. 
Should it have a bigger fire department? That's a harder question. What's the right size for the fire department? That's a harder question. Just as we can have too much of a good thing, we can have too little of a bad thing. Take pollution, for example. We all agree that pollution, I think, we all agree, that pollution is in and of itself a bad thing. We also all agree that it's a necessary byproduct of some good things, like, for example, our ability to uh, travel to Washington or our ability to sit in this room with these lights and the computers and so on. Pollution's a necessary consequence of that, which means that the right amount of pollution is not zero. None of us would want to live in a world where we had agreed to uh, never undertake any activity that causes pollution. And once you agree that the right amount is not zero, then you face the interesting question of whether we currently have too much or too little. You see, it suddenly becomes not obvious. If the right amount's not zero, there is some right amount. We have some current right amount. We have some current amount. Do we have too much? Do we have too little? It's not obvious, but I think I know the answer. I, I am pretty sure that the world has too much pollution. And the reason I'm pretty sure of that is that the people who decide to create pollution, by and large, do not have to live with all the consequences of their actions. The consequences of those actions fall on other people. And it's a general principle of economics that when people don't feel all the consequences of their behavior, they tend to do too much of that behavior if the consequences are negative. The consequences are positive, they tend to do too little. That's why we have too much pollution. It's why we also have too few people out on the mall picking up trash. Because if you go out on the mall and pick up trash, that's a good thing, but most of the benefits accrue to somebody other than you, and that's a large part of the reason why you're not out there doing it. Uh, economists have argued for a long time that when, uh, and the jargon for this is externalities, behavior that has uh, effects on people other than the decision maker. Economists have argued for a long time that when there are externalities, we ought to try and nudge people in the right direction. Uh, that we should, uh, when people don't feel all the bad consequences of their behavior, we can make them feel those consequences by taxing them for that behavior. When people don't feel all the uh, good consequences of their behavior, we can nudge them in the right direction by subsidizing them or rewarding them for that behavior. And that's often, that's often the case. Um, but it's not always the case. Uh, there's a, a, a very famous example due to uh, Arthur Cecil Pigou, which who, who's the economist uh, from about 100 years ago, who first thought through these externality uh, issues. And he looked at the case of, uh, in England, they were having a problem at the time. Railroads had laid tracks right next to uh, the land that farmers had planted with crops. And uh, those 19th, early 20th century trains, as they came along those tracks, the metal wheels going on the, on the metal tracks tended to throw off sparks. And the sparks started fires. And sometimes you would have whole fields of crops that were ignited by these sparks. And that was a bad thing. Pigou argued that, uh, certainly correctly, that this doesn't mean we want zero trains. It may be worth having a few fires in order to have the advantages of having railroads. But on the other hand, it probably means we have too many trains because the railroad companies are not feeling all the consequences of their actions. They're not accounting for that when they're deciding how many trains to run. And therefore, it would be a good thing 
if the railroad companies were required to reimburse the farmers for the fire damage, reimburse the farmers for the spark damage that those trains cause. Uh, then they'd account for their actions, they'd run fewer trains, they'd run the right amount of trains, everything would be so much better. 50 years ago, uh, uh, the great economist Ronald Coase, uh, who is uh, still active today at age 101, in a, in, in a Nobel Prize winning paper, he won the Nobel Prize for this very simple idea that I'm about to give you. It's a very simple idea that somehow had escaped the notice of every economist. He said, look, maybe that's the right solution, but when I look at this, it also looks to me like maybe if the farmers just moved their crops back a little bit from the tracks, that there wouldn't be a problem anymore, okay? The sparks would not be, they'd be landing on dirt. They wouldn't be causing fires. There'd be no problem. And I think it would be a good idea for farmers to have an incentive to think about maybe moving their crops back from the tracks. And you know, if you make the railroad reimburse them for all the damage, they're not going to do that. They're not going to care if there are fires. So the observation here is that you don't just have to worry about the incentives of the railroads. You've also got to worry about the incentives faced by the farmers. You want to try and get everyone's incentives right. Now, in a system with well-defined property rights and in which everyone can easily negotiate with each other and enforce their agreements, there is no problem. Everybody's going to agree to do whatever is the most efficient thing. If the railroad has the property rights to that land and is allowed to throw sparks onto it, the farmers will be able to negotiate with the railroad and offer them uh, a, a payment to run fewer trains. If the, if the farmers own that land, the railroad will be forced to negotiate with the farmers. We have no problem if property rights are well-defined and there are no barriers to negotiation, but that's not always the case. Sometimes property rights are not well-defined often because it never occurred to anybody that there was a need to define a property right here until, uh, until a problem arose. Sometimes there are barriers to negotiation just coming from the fact that there are so many parties to a conflict that it's hard to get them all in one room. Sometimes there are barriers to negotiation coming from the fact that the legal system cannot be counted on to enforce contracts. And therefore, uh, we typically have this problem where whenever you have an externality, you got to worry about incentives on both, sides of the, uh, on both sides of the equation. Take pollution again, for example. Here's this factory belching smoke into the air, making the neighbors very unhappy. The neighbors have got to breathe all that smoke. It, it makes their houses dirty. It makes their cars dirty. They're very unhappy about that. The owner of the factory does not account for that damage when deciding how, much, uh, how many cars to produce or whatever he's producing in this factory. So he does too much of it. There's too much smoke. Pigou would have said, well, certainly we should tax that pollution in order to encourage the factory owner to behave a little better. There are many circumstances in which that might be the right solution. But Professor Coase pointed out that, you know, there are other solutions to this problem too. Maybe the neighbors could move away. And then there wouldn't be a problem. You could let all that smoke belch into the air and it wouldn't be bothering anybody. Now, is that a better solution? Here's the key point. Economic theory can't tell you that. Whether it's a better solution depends all on the particulars of the case. 
How difficult would it be for these people to move away? How sad would they be to have to resettle in another place? There are all kinds of particulars there that economic theory can't tell you about. They don't show up in our graphs and our equations. But the fact is that if you tax this factory and get them to reduce the smoke, you reduce the incentives for the neighbors to leave. And that might or might not be a bad outcome. Here's the polluted stream. Once again, the fishermen are very unhappy that the stream is polluted. But maybe the best solution for this is for them to go fish someplace else. So sometimes we want to have these taxes and subsidies. It's a, sort of an unsatisfying answer from an economist's point of view. Theory can't tell us what we should always do. Sometimes you want to have a system of taxes and subsidies. Sometimes you don't. Take, again, the case of smoking. Smoking bothers a lot of people. It bothers me. I hate to be around people who are smoking. So we say, OK, then people smoke too much. Maybe we should discourage them from smoking by taxing cigarettes. Well, maybe we should do that. Or maybe people like me should go out and buy gas masks. Okay? <laughs> that might be a better solution. Now, now, you laugh because it's pretty obviously, in this case, not a better solution. But the point is that theory can't tell you it's not a better solution. You knew it was not a good solution because you thought about the particulars of the situation, not the general theory. Uh, you got oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico, which uh, uh, cause damage to, say, the shrimping industry. Do we want to discourage those oil spills? Maybe we do. We probably do. But it's possible that a better solution is to just let the oil spills happen and encourage the shrimpers to go shrimp someplace else. So there are issues with Pigovian taxes. One issue is that they distort the incentives. They always distort the incentives. When you stop somebody from causing damage, you uh, uh, also distort the incentive for somebody else to solve that problem. A second problem, of course, with taxes, with all taxes, is that you're always weighing liberty versus efficiency. Even if the tax is the efficient solution, even if the tax gets you to the economically best solution, even if the tax makes things more prosperous, we always remember in the back of our minds that the power to tax is the power to destroy, and we don't want to willy-nilly give out the power to tax any more than we have to. You know, I, there are two things I really care about in public policy. I care about liberty, and I care about efficiency, where efficiency means uh, uh, the path to prosperity. I feel incredibly fortunate that the two things I care about, generally speaking, reinforce each other. Liberty leads to prosperity. I showed you yesterday all the ways in which liberty leads to prosperity. So I don't normally face a conflict here. But sometimes I do. Sometimes there's a conflict. Sometimes these values are in opposition to each other. You see it often. Well, here, in, let's talk about car insurance markets. Historically, in very similar cities, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, for example, under facing the same state regulatory regime, they're in the same state, Car insurance costs three times as much in Philadelphia as in Pittsburgh. Why is that? Because Philadelphia got into a bad equilibrium. If you got a lot of uninsured motorists, then your chance of having an encounter with an uninsured motorist goes up. The chance that you're, that's going to cost your insurance company money goes up. They raise the rates. Because they raise the rates, more people become uninsured. And you get into this vicious cycle. People are uninsured because the insurance rates are high, and the insurance rates are high because people are uninsured. 
you can break out of that cycle by forcing people to buy insurance at the uh, at, at at a considerable uh, uh, cost to their liberty. Uh, this, of course, is in some sense exactly the same issue that we're facing in the healthcare markets right now. Um, in the healthcare markets, I would argue that, that the, the conflict is less clear. It's not, I, I, I certainly don't think anybody who sat through this morning's talk believes that Obamacare is an efficient uh, uh, policy. But there are markets, and in particular, there are insurance markets where sometimes we face these trade-offs. I'm not gonna tell you how to settle that trade-off, but I wanna acknowledge it exists. Uh, that's not the main thing I wanna talk about, though, today. Uh, the main thing I wanna talk about is up sort of the prior question of how we know when the world has too much of something or too little. How do we know if we even want to think about whether we might want to tax an activity or subsidize an activity? Once we get to the point where we say, yeah, maybe that activity should be taxed, then we start trading off the liberty versus efficiency stuff. But let's, what we need is a, uh, a method for deciding which things we have too much of and which things we have too little of in the first place. And I gave you the key to that method with pollution. When people do not take account of, their, of the consequences of their behavior, when those consequences fall on someone else, they do too much. If the consequences are good they, and, they don't, uh, and the decision maker doesn't feel those consequences, they do too little. So let's look at some applications of that simple principle, some surprising applications of that simple principle. Let's ask if the world has too much or too little casual sex. Let's do a thought experiment. Suppose that you are a very reckless, promiscuous person who's had a lot of partners and not been very careful in the way you interacted with those partners, and you are therefore very likely to be infected with some terrible disease. And I want to make clear that when I say suppose you are this person, I am not looking at anybody in particular. <laughs> um, suppose you are that person. Well, if you go out and you find a new partner tonight, you are polluting the stream in which everybody else is fishing for partners. You're making it more likely that somebody is going to find an unsafe partner tonight you're not taking account of the negative consequences of your actions, which are largely going to fall on somebody else, your potential partner, and maybe that person's future partners. Therefore, you're engaging in too much of that activity. The world would be a better place if you took fewer partners. Arthur Pigou would have argued that we should tax you for taking additional partners. Yeah. All right. Nobody ever seems to have any trouble following that example. Now let's look at the flip side of it. Suppose you are a very cautious person. Suppose you are a person who has had very few partners and been very careful with them and are very unlikely to be infected with anything terrible. If you go out tonight and find another partner, you are improving the quality of the partner pool. The person who goes home with you is having safer sex than they even realize. Okay? They're getting luckier than they think they are. Okay? <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's like going out on the mall and picking up trash. You're making the world a safer place for other people. And therefore, by the same principle that tells us that the world has too much pollution, 
by the same principle that tells us that the world has too few people picking up trash, we know that those people are having too few partners, that the world would be a better place if they had more. Not too many more, because we don't want to turn them into those dangerous promiscuous people. But if they had a few more partners, the world would be a better place. In fact, it'd be a better place for two reasons. I just told you about uh, the first one. If you're that cautious person, the, the person who goes home with you had a, had a uh, relatively safe encounter. The second reason is empirically much more important, also a bit more macabre, and that's this. If you are that very conservative person who rarely has sex with new partners, but just tonight you make an exception, there's a chance that you will hook up with somebody infected. And if so, you might get sick. And if you get sick, you're going to go home and you're going to die. And that's wonderful. Because when you die, the virus dies with you. And if somebody is going to get sick tonight, I want it to be you and not my promiscuous friend over here who's going to spread it to 20 other people before dying. If somebody's going to get sick tonight, I want it to be a conservative person who is mostly going to stay home afterward. And if we can get that conservative person out there tonight getting sick, that's a good thing. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, and I'll give you some data on this in a couple minutes, unfortunately, you can't use this as a pickup line. You cannot go into a bar and say, you should go home with me because think how wonderful it would be if I infected you with something and you died. Okay? <laughs> but that's the whole point. The whole point is the disconnect between what's good for the individual and what's good for the broader society. That's exactly the issue we have with pollution. right? There's a disconnect between the individual incentives and what's socially good. Um, now, when I say the world would be a better place, when I say the world would be a better place if that person took an additional partner, what exactly do I mean? What economic theory tells us, okay, and there's a substantial argument for this, which is in all the textbooks, I'm not going to go through the graphs and equations, but what economic theory tells us is that because you are conferring benefits on other people, if you ramp up your activity a little bit, the world has to be a better place in the sense that, in economic jargon, welfare increases, which means that the total benefits of your activity exceed the total costs. Now, what, what exactly does that mean? I'll show it on a slide. There are two ways welfare could increase. First of all, you could actually reduce the amount of disease in the world via the mechanisms I talked about. Second of all, you might not reduce the amount of disease in the world because there are, after all, an enormous number of secondary and tertiary effects that come from this, and the additional encounter certainly uh, uh, I talked about the positive sides of it, but there's also an obvious negative side. Each additional counter is an additional opportunity for the virus to spread. So disease might go up or might go down. But if disease goes up, people will be having enough more fun that it will be worth it. The benefits of that sex that people are, that the voluntary participants are, are enjoying okay, will be more than enough to compensate them for the additional risk of disease. The benefits will be more than enough to compensate them for the additional risk of disease. One of those two things has to be true. Theory tells us that one of those two things has to be true. It doesn't tell us which. 
For that, you need to go to the numbers. Um, one way or another, a small amount of additional activity by the least promiscuous has to increase welfare. Let's think about uh, what the actual numbers on that are. Here's a graph showing quantity of partners. These careful people have currently some actual quantity. There is some actual quantity that they're currently choosing. There is a welfare maximizing quantity which is larger. Okay? If we could get them to move up to that welfare maximizing quantity, uh, the excess of benefits over costs would increase. There's also a disease-minimizing quantity, and theory does not tell us whether that's more or less than the current quantity. If all you want to do is minimize disease, theory doesn't tell us whether you want these people to become more or less active. But if you go to the numbers, and if you use a standard epi epidemiological model and uh, enhance that model by putting in some standard economic theory about the way people respond to incentives, and you run the numbers through this, you end up discovering that the disease-minimizing quantity is somewhere in the middle there. What that means is that if we could get these people to become a little more promiscuous, disease would go down. If they became a little more promiscuous than that, disease would start going up, but it would still be a good thing, and then you wouldn't want to go past that welfare-maximizing quantity. Uh, there is, at Harvard University, a very smart economist named Michael Kramer, who knows a lot about epidemiology and a lot about economics and a lot about working with data. And he's done some very careful work on this. And his best estimate is that if you could take all of the people who average fewer than two and a quarter partners per year and bring them all up to two and a quarter on average, that doesn't mean literally two and a quarter partners. It means... Uh, <laughs> Uh, nine partners every four years or something, that you would substantially reduce the spread of HIV. Uh, what are the policy implications of that? If we took Arthur Pigou seriously, it would mean that we should tax sexual behavior by people who are already very promiscuous. We should subsidize sexual behavior by people who are currently very cautious. Okay? If you had a new partner last night, you should either get a reward or a punishment, depending on what sort of person you were. I suppose the practical problem with that is you can't tell by looking who is who. You can't tell by looking who is promiscuous and who's not, so you don't know who you want to subsidize and who you want to tax. Uh, the traditional solution to that in economic theory is that you find a reward which only one sort of person will value. You find a reward that promiscuous people don't care about and non-promiscuous people do care about. Something like, for example, a library card, um, <laughs> which you could give as a reward for, for having an additional partner. Um, let me uh, uh, go on uh, from that example to an example of considerably more importance for public policy, although perhaps related. Let me go on from the example of sex to the example of reproduction. Does the world have too many or too few people? Does the world have too many people or too few people? You know, when you ask this question, there's always somebody in the crowd who says, well, wait a minute. How many people can the Earth support? Let's ask that. How many people can the Earth support? Those people are not serious. It's the wrong question. Okay? Because when you ask that question, what you're saying, in effect, is that there's such a thing as too many people. And that's true. We know that. There's such a thing as too much of anything. 
Of course there's such a thing as too many people. That's not the interesting question. The interesting question is do we currently have too many or too few? Would we like to ramp up the population or to ramp down the population? There's such a thing as too many. There's also such a thing as too few. The question is, is not that. It's the question is, do we have too many or too few? To answer that, you've got to look at the benefits and costs of bringing another person into the world. And it's not enough to just look at the benefits and costs. You've got to separate the benefits and costs that are felt by the decision makers from the benefits and costs that spill over onto other people. I'll call those the private benefits and the spillover benefits. Spillover is another word for externality. The point is that the private benefits and costs are not going to go into our public policy calculation. Individuals are already accounting for those. Okay? The guy who pollutes the air insofar as he's breathing that air himself, that's his choice. There's no reason for anybody to second guess that. That does not enter into the question of whether the world has too much pollution or not. So insofar as the costs affect, who are the decision makers? The decision makers are the parents and the potential parents who are deciding how many children to have. Um, the costs and benefits that are felt by the decision makers are irrelevant to the question of whether we have too many people or not. The important questions are the spillover costs and benefits. So let's think about what goes in each of these boxes. Let's look first of all at the private benefits. Well, the biggest private benefit of having a child is for most of us, that we, we love our children. And uh, that, of course, one could expand on that for hours and hours, all of the joy that we get from, from interacting with our children and from knowing that they're there and from knowing that they love us. That's a huge private benefit. Of course, the decision maker accounts for that. What about on the cost side? Well, if you have a child, you've got to feed that child, you've got to clothe them, you've got late nights sitting up with them when they're sick, when they get a little older, you're bailing them out of jail. Um, all of those are private costs felt by the parent, felt by the decision maker, and therefore not relevant to the question of whether the world has too many people or not. Okay? If I have a child and I bear all those costs voluntarily, well, it's nobody else's business that I chose to do that. What about spillover costs, spillover benefits? Let's go to the benefits first. First of all, the child you have is not just going to love you, uh, but most of the time is going to eventually love and be loved by other people. Most of the people in this room, I'm guessing, have at some time or another in their lives be loved, been loved by somebody other than their parents. Um, that's a benefit you brought to the world. That's a benefit you brought to somebody else that your parents did not fully account for when they decided to have you, okay. which suggests they might have been having too few children. Of course, we can't conclude that until we finish looking at the costs also. Friendship. It's not just the people you love, it's the people you befriend. Diversity. There's the diversity you bring to the world. Okay? Just uh, uh, by being the unique person that you are, and that diversity enables niche interests to thrive. We can't have Ethiopian restaurants or chamber music or parasailing unless there's a, uh, 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 a critical mass of people who are interested in that. And that requires a large population. There are 6 billion people in the world, 7 billion people in the world. About 140 of them wanted to come to Cato University. Okay? If there were half as many people, we might not be able to support this activity. We need lots of people to have that kind of diversity. Also, and this is the big one, 
Every child brought into the world has at some point in their life some ideas, ideas ranging from, hey, let's put on a play, to, hey, let's make computer chips out of silicon. And we saw yesterday how important those ideas are for everyone's prosperity. The ideas that a child has, the, the, the point about ideas is they're so easy to copy. They're so easy to copy, they're so easy to improve on, and they live forever. They outlive the person who creates the idea. So when you have a child, every idea that child is ever going to have is a contribution that you have made to the world that you perhaps didn't think about when you were deciding to have that child. All right, that's a lot of benefits to having more kids. What are the costs? The big cost everyone thinks about is resource consumption. If I have a child, that child is going to eat fish, burn gasoline, take up space. But before we put that cost on our chart, we have to think about whether it goes in the spillover box or the private box. And you know, a lot of people get this wrong. They think that resource consumption is always a spillover effect, that resource consumption always hurts somebody else. But that's not true. Okay? The fish that I, uh, that I catch or the apple that I grow myself that nobody else would have caught or that nobody else would have grown, okay? that resource, if I consume that, that's not hurting anybody. Okay? The resources I create and consume, it's not hurting anybody. The resources I trade for, are not hurting anybody. If I grow an apple and trade it for a fish, I haven't hurt anybody. And then, you know, another big source of resources for a large segment of the population, and I'm guessing for the families of a lot of people in this room, is inheritance. We get a lot of our resources not by creating them ourselves, not by trading for them, but because we got them from our parents. Not just financial resources, but all the training we get from our parents, all the uh, uh, teaching that we get about how to behave in the world, all the schooling we get from them, and the financial resources we get from them. Who does that hurt? A lot of people get that wrong, too. They think that if your kids weren't inheriting all that stuff, somebody else's kids would be, but that's not true. They think that if I had less, they think that if I weren't here consuming resources, there would be a little bit more for everybody else. That's not true. If I weren't here, there'd be a lot more for these two people, my sisters. The resources that we get from our parents mostly are not taken away from the rest of the world. They're taken away from our siblings. And what's important is your parents cared about those siblings. Your parents cared about those siblings, which means this is a cost they accounted for. Okay? If you have an older brother, the day you were born was the worst day of that older brother's life. Okay? <laughs> cut the inheritance in half, cut the parental attention in half. Okay? But your parents who loved that brother thought you were worth it. Okay? They knew what they were doing to him. Okay? And they loved him and they cared, and they thought you were worth it. Okay. That, in other words, is the sort of decision that nobody else needs to second guess. The consequences are concentrated in the family of decision makers who made that decision. So it seems to me that most resource consumption 
if we're deciding where to put it, it goes not in the spillover category, it goes in the private category. The resources we create go in the private category, the resources we trade for go in the private category, and the very substantial resources that we get from our parents largely go in that private category. What about spillover costs of bringing another kid into the world? Uh, the big ones are that kid might become a thief, might become a conqueror, might become a major polluter. How important are those things? I do not know. I haven't collected numbers on this. But my guess is that most people are not thieves. Most people are not conquerors. Most people are not major polluters. And when I say most people are not thieves, I'm not counting that notebook you shoplifted in seventh grade. Uh, but uh, uh, looking at that in the context of all the comparing it to everything in the box above there with the love, the friendship, the diversity, the ideas, uh, I think a reasonable guess, and, I, and I'm acknowledging that this is a guess, is that for most children brought into the world, the stuff in that upper right box dwarfs the stuff in the lower right box. The important point is that the stuff in the left-hand boxes doesn't count. It doesn't matter from the point of view of deciding whether there are too many children in the world or not. Another thing that might go in that box on the, on the lower box on the right is public assistance, kids who go on public assistance are imposing a cost on the rest of the world. And to do an honest accounting here, we would certainly want to uh, account for that as well. But again, what I want to stress is the importance of not counting the private costs. And let me illustrate in a, uh, a slightly different way what I mean by that. Here we have two families. They each live uh, on an acre of land. So that's one family's acre and the other family's acre. One family doubles its population every generation, while the other one practices zero population growth. So a generation later, this land's been cut in half. Everybody's living on half an acre. This family over here, they've still got their acre. And a generation later, this one's cut in half, and cut in half, and cut in half again. Eventually, everyone in this family's living on a postage stamp. Everyone in this family is living on an acre. People in this family are going to be poorer. They're also going to have the joy of having a lot more grandchildren. Which is better, to be rich or to have a lot of grandchildren? That's a matter of taste. Okay? It is not a problem that one family made one choice and the other family made another choice. And as long as the choices of this family do not impinge on the choices of that family, there's no reason for this family to complain. The, the, only, the only reasonable basis for a complaint is if this family does start in some way impinging here, again, maybe by starting a war, by, 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 by becoming thieves. But we have to weigh against that all the positive stuff we get from having this, this, this big population over here. This big population is creating ideas which those people over there can copy. This big population over here is creating diversity, which, which increases the number of choices available to this family over here. Everybody in this family is a potential lover, a potential friend, a potential mate, a potential somebody who will smile, on, smile at you as you pass them on the street or stop to help you when, you're, uh, when your car breaks down. Um, that's what you want to focus on when you're deciding if the world has too many uh, children or not. What are the spillover effects from this family to this family? We don't normally account for those when we're deciding how many children to have. Uh, I have one child, it's a daughter. 
There she is. Um, she, uh, she's getting married next month. She's getting married to a terrific guy. Uh, I have one child. I have one child because that's what I wanted. I weighed costs and benefits. I thought about my family's particular situation. And I said, one's enough. But somewhere in this world, as far as I know, somewhere in this room, there's a young lady my daughter's age whose life has been permanently impoverished by my failure to have the son who would have someday swept her off her feet. <laughs> and if I had cared about that young woman as much as I care about my own daughter, I would have had that son. If I had cared about the rest of the world as much as I cared about my own daughter, I would have had that son. I just threw that one in to prove we're related. <laughs> um, if, you, if you are worried, uh, the other issue that comes up when we talk about population is that uh, people worry that the world is too crowded. You know, if you, if, you look, if you look on the television news, you get the idea that the world looks like that. Uh, but if you actually fly over the United States and look out the window, you discover that it really looks like that. Uh, there is a lot of space in the world. I know it looks like there are a lot of people when you're walking down the street in New York. The fact is, everyone in the world fits in the Grand Canyon if you stack them right. <laughs> or, if you don't like that image, take this one, which I got from Thomas Sowell. Take the state of Texas, divide it up into lots, each the size of the average middle-class house lot in the United States. The average middle-class single-family home in the United States. Take a lot uh, that size, divide the state of Texas up into those lots, put a family of four in each of those homes, you have just housed the world's entire population. Uh, fill up Oklahoma with the fast food places and, and you're all set. It's easy to forget that kind of thing because you see, and this is, this is something that comes up in economics all the time, we overestimate the size of crowds everywhere we go on average for the following reason. There's always a lot of people around to observe a crowd by definition, okay? If your doctor's office is empty half the day and really crowded the other half the day, every one of his patients is going to say it's really crowded all the time because that's all they ever see, right? Um, this is important, incidentally, when you analyze things like unemployment statistics. You, uh, you go around and you ask people, uh, how long have you been unemployed? How long have you been unemployed? Well, the people who are unemployed a really long time are very likely to be unemployed on the day when you're asking the question. The people with short durations of unemployment there's a good chance they're back at work by the time you ask the question. So when you ask a question like that, you, you, um, you sample mostly people with long durations of unemployment. It's the same phenomenon. When you look around you, you're, more people are in crowds than are not, and therefore more people think the world is crowded than don't. It is easy when you are stuck in traffic on a hot summer night to remember that the guy in front of you is imposing a cost and that the world would be better off without him. It is also easy to forget 
that the guy who invented car air conditioning is conferring a benefit, and that if you halved the world's population, you'd have been as likely to get rid of that guy as this guy. Uh, so there is my chart, and it is not definitive. I have not actually attempted to compute what is the fraction of people who become important thieves, what's the fraction of people who become major polluters. What I want to give you here is a way of thinking. The way of thinking says that if it, not just population, not just sex, not just pollution, but any time anybody asks you, does the world have too much of something or too little, you want to focus on who were the, A, who were the decision makers, B, what incentives were they facing, and C, were their incentives aligned with the spillover effects of their behavior. So if there are some morals here, I think the first moral is that we need more population, not less. That's not really proven, but I think it's a pretty good uh, 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 guess from, from what we've talked through. Uh, does it follow from that that we want to subsidize people to have more children? Arthur Pagouf would certainly have said yes. There is a good economic case for saying that if the world doesn't have enough people, maybe we ought to subsidize that. Uh, there is also, of course, this is once again one of those issues where you might be squeamish about subsidizing such personal behavior as the choice to, to make a child because you're worried about liberty issues, and I'm sympathetic to that too. Uh, there's a bit of a conflict there. Uh, but what it at least means is that we should not be discouraging people from having more children. I, I understand selfishness. Like I said, I had one child because I was selfish. What I don't understand is encouraging other people to be selfish, which seems to me to be the entire point of organizations like zero population growth. Um, the more important moral is that the only way to tell if you've got too much of something is to examine the incentives faced by the decision makers, as I said. And my third moral is to follow logic wherever it leads you. Some of the things I said today might have been counterintuitive, might have been surprising, but Let's trust logic wherever it leads us. Uh, the only alternative to logic is common sense, and common sense is what tells you the Earth is flat. <laughs> so I will stop there. <laughs>